text this morning is Luke chapter 5, verses 13, sorry, 17 through 32. Luke 5, 17 through 32. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed all, uh, through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. All right. If anyone has a white car, you might want to check your keys and hit the alarm button. We'll get a bunch of them going off, but there's the car alarm going off, evidently. It's a white car. That was a good test to see how well uh, you guys can focus on Scripture and not be distracted. Hopefully you could do better than I was doing. <laughs> uh, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we come before you this morning uh, in desperate need of mercy and grace, uh, more than we know. God, I pray that we would never get past this reality. Father, we thank you that uh, our forgiveness is decisive and eternal, and yet, Lord, uh, with ongoing sin in our life, uh, we consistently need more mercy, more grace to be conformed into your image. God, I pray that uh, you help us see the glory of Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 
We're continuing in our trek through Luke. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 5, starting at verse uh, 17. If we're going to be honest, most of us try to put our best foot forward, especially when we're in public or when people are watching in comparison to when we're alone and no one else is watching. Uh, when, when there's a crowd watching us, we tend to do the best we can to project ourselves in a way that will be seen in the best possible light. I believe that's true of you. I know it's true of me. And yet, it's a dangerous reality. It's not a righteous thing in the root of our heart that would cause us to be one thing in public and another thing in private. I especially think of social media. Uh, with social media, one of the weaknesses is, is that we can take a hundred pictures, we can grab our favorite picture, and we can type out some clever saying 10, 11 times and then pick the one that looks the cutest and the most clever and match it with our picture and project the best we can ourselves to other people that people might comment back to us. Uh, I'm not on Facebook uh, if I need to navigate on Facebook, I have to go through my wife. Uh, last uh, Monday was my birthday. At the end of the day, I think I got like maybe two texts saying happy birthday. It's not a big deal. It's okay. But about 5 o'clock, Laura posted on uh, Facebook a picture and says, happy birthday to my husband. My phone starts blowing up. I mean, she's like, I got 66 responses. And I'm like, man, that's a dangerous thing. <laughs> this, this thing called Facebook that in a moment we can trigger the praise from other people to ourselves. Can we all admit that this can be a scary reality? This morning, I want to you to consider Jesus' words. Um, in, in, in one of the words of Christ is found in John 5, 44. Jesus says to the Pharisees, here's what he says. You don't have to turn there. I just want you to listen. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? If you seek the glory and praise of man, Jesus says, how can you believe? If you don't seek the glory that comes from God, how can you trust in Christ? How can you trust Him? You know, we look at each other and we just compare ourselves to each other and don't feel bad about these tendencies to want to put our best foot forward in front of everyone else. And yet, the root of that in our heart can be the very thing that keeps us 
from going to the Scriptures to find Christ for the right reasons. Um, he says a similar thing in John 12, 42. He says, nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So there's people that said, that's the Son of God. That's my Creator. That is God, but the Pharisees will kick me out of the synagogue. I'll be publicly shown poorly. So they kept silent. The wretchedness of our hearts that this can flow out of. This morning, my call to you is this. Admit you are desperately sick and seek Jesus with everything you have. Quit playing the game of pretending you're someone you're not. Admit it. And when you feel so vulnerable and so exposed, look to Christ. Go get your righteousness from Him. Now we're going to see two types of people in our text. We're going to see those who see themselves as desperately sick and who get happily healed. People who recognize they're sick and see the doctor and say, that's who I need. And then we're going to see people who are self-righteously well. They are blind to the fact that they are sick. They think they're well. And therefore, when they come into contact with Jesus, they prove that they are bitter of heart and blind. And here's the thing. If you're a Christian, when you got saved, you did not get rid of your flesh. You're putting it to death until Christ comes. You're in the process. It's like when you trusted Christ, when I trusted Christ, I nailed Sam Ellison to the cross. You're dying. Unfortunately, the old Sam Ellison isn't dead yet. I need to be put putting to death the old Sam Ellison by the power of the Spirit. Therefore, there is a pharisaical part of Sam Ellison that still needs to die. There's some things you can point to and say, that's good, that's evidence of grace. And there's things you can point to that you can say, that needs to die. That does not please God. Saul, today's the first day we're running into the Pharisees. We're going to talk about the Pharisees a lot. I'm assuming you're all have pharisaical tendencies in your heart like I do in my heart. And my challenge to you is as we butt up to the Pharisees all throughout this gospel, you don't think of yourself as, oh, those are the bad guys. And good thing I'm on this side. Because we all have 
parts of self-righteousness that needs to die more than you might think. My goal is actually to give you eyes to see it this morning through the Word of God that you would see it. Because when you see it, then you'll run to your Bible for maybe a different reason than you've been running to your Bible. You might run to Christ in glory in Him. And uh, so at the end, I'm going to give you a little test to help you try to discern what areas of your life uh, you want to attack and then go find mercy in Christ for those things. So let's begin with our text in verse 17. Luke 5, starting in verse 17. This is an incredible account. On one of those days, as he was teaching, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who would come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now, let's stop here. Here's what we know. We know that Jesus is really popular at this point in time. Luke doesn't necessarily go in chronological order. Uh, generally, he does. But Jesus' ministry is well on its way by the time this account happens. So much so that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, they're all tracking Jesus. He's already tore apart their temple in, in John chapter 2. They're well aware and already well offended by Christ, and they are dogging him. They are following him wherever he goes, and they're listening carefully to catch him in what he might say. And I want to take about uh, five, ten minutes to describe to you what a Pharisee is. If you're going to find this in your own heart, then you're going to have to know what they were like. Now, a Pharisee was one of four uh, specific sects of, of the Jews in Jesus' day. You had Pharisees, you had Sadducees, you had Zealots, and you have the Essenes. The Pharisees were from the middle class. Uh, they weren't nearly as rich as the Sadducees, so they were kind of the common man. And the word Pharisee means set-apart ones. They were the ultra-religious. I mean, they believed every part of the Bible. Uh, the Sadducees just took the first five books of the Old Testament. They thought those were authoritative. Uh, the law of Moses, that's it. The Pharisees took the law of Moses. They took the writings. They took the prophets. They took the whole Old Testament. And uh, the Pharisees were distinct uh, in several ways. Sadducees, they were wealthy elite priests that were in cahoots with Rome. Uh, they realized Rome was in power over them, and they wanted to do everything they could to kind of buddy up with them so that their lives would be easier. They didn't, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They believed in getting your, what you could get here and now. And, and so they were more political 
and in buddying up with Rome. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not like each other at all. And then you had the Zealots. They were the political revolutionaries who wanted to defeat Rome, wanted to conquer Rome. They were constantly trying to figure out how they could uh, overthrow this rule that was over top of them. And then you have the scenes that were aesthetic monastic type that uh, would separate themselves, uh, kind of like we think of monasteries, and would fast and, tr- and try to be spiritual in those ways. Uh, John MacArthur says this about the Pharisees' theology, which is really important to understand. Uh, he says, It was in many respects faithful to the teaching of Scripture. They believed in the resurrection, the angels, the demons, predestination, and human responsibility. They looked for Messiah to come and establish an earthly kingdom and were devoted to protecting the teaching uh, of the law of God. Ironically, it was their zeal for the law that caused the Pharisees to become focused on rituals and externally keeping the law. They abandoned true religion of the heart and were mere and were for mere outward modification in ritual. Uh, the Pharisees loved the law of God so much they said, we got to set up man-made rules and boundaries around the law so that we never break it. I mean, uh, they created the Mishnah and the Talmud and the and uh a whole bunch of commentaries on how you're supposed to interpret those books. I mean, their list of rules just kept growing greater and greater. They were focused on the outward rather than the inward. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples of, of them uh, <laughs> creating more rules and laws than the Scripture commanded. In Luke 18.12, the Pharisee who's praying, he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, Jews were only commanded to fast once a year. They fast twice a week. They give a tithe of everything they get. Can you imagine? It's like, I'm buying salt today. Well, let's take, oh, i got to get 10% of the salt over here. Give that to the church. Oh, I got some dill I got to take some of this and, and literally, here's what Jesus says to them in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you've ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That's one of the funniest things Jesus said. He's like, here's how imbalanced you are. You tithe all these little spices, and you neglect what the whole point of the Bible is all about. It's like you strain out on a gnat because you don't want to eat a gnat. That would be horrible, and then you swallow a camel. That's how big a hypocrite, that's how blind they were. In Mark 7, 6, uh, we read this. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy uh, of you, hypocrites, as it is written. 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God to hold on to the tradition of men. And then he gives an example to them. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother shall surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit anything uh then you permit him to do, do not permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by the tradition that you have handed down. And you do many such things, Jesus said. So the law of God says, honor your father and mother. And those who were rich, when their parents needed to be taken care of, rather than part with that money, they would say, I declare Corban over this money I have. I'm giving it to God. I can't help my mom or dad. And Jesus says, boy, you guys are tricky. You have a good way of creating your own laws and missing what was meant uh, by the law of God. Uh, One of the characteristics of the Pharisees is that all their glory comes in comparison to other people. Uh, They always have to be looking at the comparison. That's how they function. That's how they get their identity. That's how they get their uh, worth. That's how they think that God looks at them. In, In Matthew 23, 25, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of uh, greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, you're like whitewashed tombs. You outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. If you want to know what was on the daily agenda to the Pharisee, it was how am I going to project myself for others to see so that they will give me glory. Jesus did not call them very nice names. He called them broods of vipers. You're a brood of vipers. He's saying you're children of the snake. You're children of the devil, Jesus uh, said to them at one point. Uh, He called them uh, hypocrites over and over and over again. He says, you Pharisees, hypocrites. Um, His favorite thing to call them, though, and this is what I really want to press in on you, is he loved to call them blind guides, blind fools, blind men. I think nine different times in the Gospels, he referred to the Pharisees as blind, which is a scary thing. Because you could be sitting there and you could be saying, what, what are you talking about? 
You're going to talk to us about pharisaical things in our heart, and yet, if you don't think this sermon's for you, then it's really for you. It's like, here's your sign. If you're not seeing it, if you don't see yourself for who you really are, then you... You're blind. And the scary thing is, is they knew the Bible better than anyone else. They went to church more than anyone else. They gave twice as much money to the church. They fasted a hundred times more than everyone else. If you talk to these people, they could give you answers to the scriptures. Do you see how scary this is? This could be you and the whole church could be just piling on saying, oh, you're so great. This is awesome. You help me so much. And yet you could be evil of heart in doing this all for your own glory. See, that's scary to me because it looks so good. But Jesus was really good at shining lights on them. But unfortunately, they were so blind that even when he did that, they rarely would see themselves for who they really were and see Christ for who he was. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the teachers of the law were lawyers that were experts in the law of Moses. They were the ones that knew exactly how the law was supposed to be played out. So the Pharisees and lawyers were good buddies. Most of them were Pharisees themselves. Uh, they're all there. So Jesus is teaching. They've showed up. They're in a big house, and the place is packed. And so we read, now that we have a little idea of what a Pharisee is. On one of those days, he was teaching. Pharisees, teachers of the law, were sitting there who had come from every village, Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, does that sound odd to any of you? And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. I know some of you are thinking, wait a minute, he is the Lord. What do you mean the power of the Lord was with him to heal? Well, remember Jesus, when he willingly came down in the incarnation, when the eternal son of God took on flesh, willingly came down to be born as a baby, he voluntarily laid down his independent use of his divine attributes. Let me say that again. He willingly laid down his independent use of his divine attributes. He, he didn't lay down his divine attributes. He is God. He can not not be God. But he willingly laid down the independent use of those attributes so that he was going to live as a real human being by the power of the Spirit and only do what his Father told him to do. In John 5.19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, 
but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And in Luke 4.14, we read, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And that's how all throughout Luke we're going to see Jesus does all that he does by the power of the Spirit. So the power of the Lord is with him to heal. And behold, verse 18, some men, in Mark he says it's four men, were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Find no way to bring him in because of the crowd. He went, they went up on the roof to let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, remember, these are real people in real circumstances. And this is crazy. When, when Jesus is coming to town, it's not like you're sick and you just get to go get up to the front of the line. Imagine how many sick are around. Imagine how popular Jesus is at this point in time. Even if you know he's coming two days in advance, it's going to be tough to get into that house, to, to get close enough to him, let alone if you're paralyzed and laying on a bed. You really think they're going to move out of your way? Everybody wants to hear him. Everyone wants to be healed. But this man was so desperately sick or marred, being paralyzed, that, and his friends knew it, they knew the answer was inside that house, they were going to do whatever they could to get him to Jesus. <laughs> they knew how dire it was. He wasn't, there was not going to be any doctor that was going to help this paralyzed one get better. Their only hope was to get in there. And can you imagine being in that room and all of a sudden Jesus is teaching and all of a sudden the dirt starts to fall from the ceiling and a tile starts to be pulled away and here comes down a man. Now, they don't say anything according to the text. All they're doing, what they're doing is saying it all. We're ripping a hole in the ceiling. We're dropping this guy down. We can't get in. The door's blocked. Here's the problem. You could see that he was paralyzed. Many people probably knew who this man was. And they did everything they could to lower him before Christ. And verse 20 says, when he saw their faith, he said this thing that is really shocking. Man, your sins are forgiven. Why would he do that? Everyone loves Jesus and is flocking after him because he's a great teacher and because he's healing but yet Jesus is coming for something way more important than that. He gets the first things first. Being able to walk again is not nearly as important as being able to have your sins forgiven. This affects all eternity. This affects your relationship with your Creator, with God. This is the most important thing to Christianity always. 
Everything else is secondary. Jesus came to save sinners, to forgive them of their sins. Because the reason why anyone's sick anyways is either directly because of their sin or indirectly because of their sin in Adam. That's when sickness came into the world. Not all of your sickness is caused by your specific sin. Sometimes it is, according to Scripture. But the reason why sickness and all the things we see in a fallen world exist is because of sin. And Jesus says the shocking statement. He says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, a good Jew would know that God is a forgiving God. This is what makes Yahweh amazing. David said in Psalm 65.3, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. David knew that God somehow is a forgiving God. I don't think he could figure it all out yet because Christ hadn't come. In fact, you'll feel the tension of how the Lord describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34, starting in verse 6. Here's what the Lord's like. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's what God's like. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What? God God is full of steadfast love and mercy and forgives sin. And by the way, he won't clear the guilty. So here's what you know if you're an Old Testament saint. God's merciful. He can forgive sin. All the sacrifices are illustrating this and pointing to it. Yet, he's just and he won't clear those who are guilty. We know this side of the cross that the mystery is taken care of in Christ. God says, you want to see my justice? You want to know how I can forgive sinful people? Perfect son on a cross, my wrath poured out on him. All sins are punished. Either in your eternal separation from God in hell or on Jesus Christ on the cross. We all have the choice. But he says, your sins are forgiven. Now you can imagine what this did to the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law who are waiting to catch him in his words. The scribes and Pharisees begin begin to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, their theology is good. Who can proclaim forgiveness for sins but God alone? They're exactly right. But where are they wrong? They're calling Jesus a blasphemer because they do not realize yet that he is God. Unfortunately, many of them never did believe that he was God. 
And so Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, answered them. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what this was going to create by saying, your sins are forgiven. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? You get that, right? Like if you tell me you got a 30-year mortgage on your house, and you owe this much money, and I say, no, don't, don't worry about it, it's forgiven. You're going to say, well, that's easy for you to say, but on what authority do you have to say that's been forgiven, that debt's been forgiven? It's easy to say. It's kind of like, prove it. I want to see the statement that comes in the bill, in the mail that says, paid for. Here's your home. The bank doesn't own it anymore. You do. Where's the proof? Which is easier? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say to the paralytic, rise and walk, because that has instant proof to it. But here's what he says, verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man, the Son of Man is a statement that you get from Daniel prophesying of the Messiah. It's Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Verse 25, immediately he rose before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now, what in the world are the Pharisees going to do? They are in a world of hurt because they're saying he's a blasphemer, and then Jesus is saying, oh, yeah, watch this. A guy who's been paralyzed, by the way, Jesus' miracles, none of them needed therapy. The bed that carried the man, the man carried the bed out, the cot, the board, whatever he came in on, instantly healed. These faith healers on TV that have someone with a walker and they pull it away and they stumble two steps, that's not the power of God healing somebody. It's not what Jesus did. Totally different. And they said, we've never seen anything like this before. You have two groups of people. One group says, i got to get in there. He can heal me. He has what I need. I'm in trouble without him. And another group sitting there grumbling in their minds with skeptical, critical minds. In fact, every time Jesus healed, especially on the Sabbath, You didn't see the Pharisees praising God that this poor soul that's been suffering has been healed. They're just concerned that a law was broke. No mercy. No love. They didn't know what God was like. And then we see in verse 27, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Uh, and he said to him, follow me. All right, we're running out of time again. Here's, here's what I got to tell you about tax collectors. They're the biggest scumbags 
on the face of the earth to any Jew, especially to a Pharisee. They go, they buy uh, certain tax rights from the Roman government, and then they go cl- collect way more than they're supposed to from their fellow Jews and get rich. They're extortioners, they're robbers, they're thieves. Uh, right in the Jewish writings, it says this of them. And, uh, and here you have Matthew. He would have had a lot of money. He basically sold his soul to the devil in their minds, sitting there. And Jesus comes up to him and says, he's called Levi here. He's called Matthew in, uh, in Matthew. Um, and he says, uh, sees him, he says, follow me. And leaving everything, which by the way, if you left that job, you weren't getting it back. Leaving everything, uh, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with, with them. Levi would have had a lot of money. He would have had a lot of friends. And they would have been other extortioners making money in ways that didn't honor God. Prostitutes, the lowly, the outcast. And Jesus just said, follow me. Jesus has a reputation. And God knew Levi's heart. Jesus, Jesus knew his heart. He knew that he was ready to leave it all and follow him. And he calls him, and, and Levi does a beautiful thing. He throws a party, a big reception for Christ. And of course, this didn't sit well with the Pharisees. Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, to those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners, but sinners to repentance. You see, the Messiah shows up and does exactly the opposite of what the Pharisees thought. The Pharisees thought the Messiah is going to show up and he's going to go. You want to know who you should praise? These guys over here. Look how much they fast. Look how much they tithe. Look how much they know. Look how much they sacrifice. But instead, Jesus says, I didn't come for any of them. They're pretty confident. They're pretty good. I came for the sinners. This party is my party. You want to know who I came for? I came for these types of people who know who they are and know that they need a Savior. Let me tell you, the gospel is crazy. <laughs> it's, I mean, and I say crazy in a good way. Listen to Luke 15, 7. Just so I tell you, here's what Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner, tax collector, prostitute, lowlife, who repents, than over 99 persons who need no repentance. 99 over here that live their lives better according to the law. And yet that one sinner over there that gets on his face and repents, that's where the party is. It's not over here. God's not impressed 
with your C minus righteousness that's, by the way, is an F, you just don't see it because you're blind. God's heart is with the humble. God never sent his son down and said, go get the good ones. There is no good ones. There's ones that can see, though, and know what they are, and then there's blind ones. And Jesus said, I didn't come for the blind ones. They're not mine. You want to know why God saved Timothy? Here's why he saved Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.13. I mean, why he saved Paul. Paul's writing this to Timothy. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because, you ready for it? I acted ignorantly in unbelief. You want to know why I received mercy? Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And you say, wait a minute, I thought you were saved by faith. Well, keep listening. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You want to know where your faith comes from? It doesn't come from you. It comes from the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's where it comes from. God chose Paul because he's a blasphemer, a persecutor, and he acted ignorantly in unbelief. You can go read it for yourself. I know some of you are thinking, that's crazy. And then verse 15 says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are willing to believe in him for eternal life. This is unbelievable. Jesus came for sinners. It, here's how he says it in Romans 4.4. 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are, counted, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you work for something, it's not a gift when your employer pays you. It's your due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The one who doesn't work, but who believes that God justifies, finds not guilty the ungodly, that's the one that's justified before God. Let me tell you something. We can read our Bibles for the wrong reasons. We can miss this whole thing. See, the more mature Paul got, the more sin he saw. He's calling himself the foremost of all sinners. What I want to do, I don't do. Some of us can be so blind that we think we're growing in righteousness because we actually, the weird thing is, the more you become like Christ, the more sin you see the more broken you become over your sinful heart and the more desperately you go to your Bible. Now, real quickly, I'm going to lead you through these tests to help you see it. I see this in my life. Don't feel like I'm just picking on you. The Bible's picking on you. 
And since I had to get picked on all week, I'll share the love. So you have two types of people, the desperately sick. I'm going to show you the difference between them and the, and the bitterly blind. All right, fast. We're going to go through these fast. Here's the question. If you're desperately sick, do you see Jesus as your only hope of righteousness and healing? Is your presupposition, I am so sinful and weak that, that I need Christ? Or do you look to God rather than for mercy, commendation? Or do you go to the Scripture to prove that you're better? Do you come to Christ so that he'll say, this is a good one? There's the first test. Second one. Do you see his mercy and therefore mercifully bring others to Jesus? That's what these four men did. They, they brought him to Jesus. Levi includes all of his friends. If I'm following Jesus, we're all having a Jesus party. Or do you see his mercy and get upset because Jesus is rewarding people that haven't sacrificed nearly as much as you have? If, if you see someone else receive mercy and you know all about their sin and you know your life looks better than theirs, and that mercy's bothering you, it's a sign that that's an area of your heart you need to kill. Don't you know you need mercy? If you know you need mercy, it's easy to give mercy to someone else. Third, do you keep the gospel your main focus and demonstrate personal holiness of an even more broken heart over your sin and thankfulness to Christ? Is the, are you waking up in the morning? I need the gospel. Because every day, as I look in God's word, I, more light shines in on my selfish, sinful, prideful heart. And so I need more mercy and grace. And the more of this I see and the more of Christ I see mediating for me, worship's coming out. Or do you rather than have the gospel be central? Do you love debates over religious rules? Do you love debates uh, about how things are going to be lived out? Which one joys your heart more? Seeing your sin and trusting Christ or debating whether you should do it this way or this way? Fourth, the heart is the concern of the humble sinner. The desperately sick person, the heart is their concern. But if you would describe your sanctification, if someone said, are you growing in the Lord, and you mainly point to outward things rather than the inward recognition of sin, pride, selfishness, unbelief, if you, if you would rather point towards... Uh, you know, your church attendance, your Bible reading plan, all that you're learning, uh, your fasting, the way you dress or don't dress, the things you do or don't do, this is a sign that maybe you're more excited about the things that make you look different than other people so that you can get glory from other people. 
The last three have to do with reading the Bible. You can read the Bible and love it because you know that you lack wisdom in and of yourself. You can get up in the morning and say, I need God's Word. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word uh, that comes from the mouth of God. I am not wise in my own sight. I do not think I can get through a day without your wisdom, God. I need the Scripture. That's one way you can love the Bible. But you can love the Bible this way. You can read the Bible and love it because it proves you're smart and you know more in comparison to other people. I've done this. I mean, when I saw the sovereignty of God for the first time, and I realized, holy smokes, God didn't save me because I got smart enough and trusted in him. I got smart enough and trusted him because God's mercy flowed to me by sheer grace. That humbled me. That made me worship. But it wasn't very long because I I had a lot of opponents that disagreed with that view of the sovereignty of God. And they weren't being very nice to me. So really quickly, I got a highlighter. I'm like, oh, man, there's another one. They're so blind. I can't believe they don't see this. I'm finding it everywhere. And guess what? Worship's not coming out of my heart. There's a way you can go to your Bible and separate yourself from other people because of the knowledge. You can love your Bible. All I want to talk about is Bible because I know I'm smarter than you. We can do that. You can read the Bible and love it because you actually desire to be exposed of heart and be lifted up in Christ's righteousness. You know, you can actually go to the Bible and say, show me if there's any unclean way inside me. Let your light shine in. It's hard. I'm telling you, I see myself in the other list way more than this list. But that's one way to read your Bible. And in other ways, you can read your Bible and love it because you feel that it tells you that you are the good ones in comparison to others. Finally, you can read the Bible and love it because it carries God's authority and helps you humble yourself under his mighty hand. When you come to this, this is not someone's opinion. This is God's word. Your creator says Thus says the Lord. That's what this is. Carries authority. Or you can come read this, and this can give you a sort of authority that you've always wanted to manipulate and abuse other people for your own glory. All that to say this. All these people love the Bible. Both both people can love the Bible. Both people can... Talk the talk. It all looks good, but how deceptive can our hearts be? My prayer is, is that you go home this week, you read these accounts, and you ask yourself, am I the grumbler? Am I the questioner? Am I the one who has all this knowledge but has this bitter heart that's angry? separates myself from loving others. If that's you, I see that being me a lot. Ask God to help you. Look at Christ. He can forgive your sins. Jesus lived the perfect life, has perfect righteousness. 
to offer sinners. It's the only organization in the world, the church is, where the qualification to get in is that you know you stink. That's the qualification. He didn't come for anyone else. If you want in, you have to admit it. And you have to be willing to say, that's what I need. Levi left his tax booth and said, I need him. Father, I pray that you would make us like you. Father, I pray that we would hear Jesus' words that he spoke to the Pharisees when he says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God, I pray that we would realize that we wouldn't be surprised that when you show up on this earth, you're showing compassion, forgiveness, and mercy to people. That was surprising to the Pharisees, and that can be surprising to us. God, I pray that we would be like Christ, that we'd be so humbled, so broken, that all of our striving for holiness would be out of a desperate humility being gracious and patient with others, bringing them to the mercy that we need. God, I pray that this would be true. In Jesus' name, amen.